Colossians 2 is where we turn again this morning and finishing this first little part of this wonderful chapter of this wonderful little book. Colossians 2 reminds us of Paul's, I wouldn't say anxiety, but great burden, great concern for the churches that he uh, personally established, or in this case, in Colossae, a church that he did not personally establish, but loves deeply, cares for them, is concerned for their spiritual uh, advancement, and even <clears throat> specifically concerned for their uh, with, withstanding false teaching that is trying to infiltrate in this assembly. And so he has written this wonderful brief letter from a Roman uh, imprisonment uh, two years there, and uh, yet he is so concerned, not concerned for himself, but concerned for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the establishment of Christians' faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read the first few verses of this chapter, and then we'll look at verse 5 specifically. Paul says here in Colossians 2 and verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you through or with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ Jesus. How wonderful. Paul's model for us. He who has been falsely accused, has been impugned, he's been uh, imprisoned all these years, and yet he is so concerned for this Colossian church, people that he's never seen personally and yet loves deeply and loves them and has prayed for them and has taken time to write this letter. Now, he didn't write letters to everybody. At least uh, we don't have uh, in our New Testament canon all the different things that, that have been written. Even uh, John the evangelist said, you know, if, if we wrote down everything that Jesus said or did, we've, the whole world couldn't keep all the books. Well, uh, the point is we have this written down for us, for our advancement here in the 21st century. And Paul says, I know I'm not with you. I know I can't be with you, but I am burdened for you. I want you to succeed, and I am so glad. My joy, now sometimes we think joy is uh, uh, irrespective of circumstance, but he says, I rejoice when I see faith being advanced and being built up. We'll consider that a little bit more carefully here shortly. What joy that is. Paul says, I am writing these things for even though I'm absent. He says, I, I'm writing these things because I'm burdened for you. Back in verse four, we looked at last week. I don't want anyone to delude you, to lead you astray through persuasive arguments. Sounds like, boy, that's pretty reasonable. That's what these people are saying. That I mean, they, they at least alluded to the scripture. They said the Bible says, so that means, right? The Bible says God helps those who help themselves. Well, that's right. You know, take that to the bank. Wait a minute. In the back of your book, back of your Bible, you have a concordance. If you were to look up in that or a more robust concordance, or if you just searched online, if you search for that phrase, God helps those who help themselves, it's not in the scriptures. And uh, and yet it sounds good. It's persuasive. It sounds like we ought to do it. It's kind of the American way, you know, rugged individualism and that kind of thing. But no, God helps those who are absolutely humble and dependent on him and recognizes absolute need. I am nothing if I'm apart from Christ, right? Jesus says, apart from you, for, apart from me, you can do a little bit, 
a great deal? No, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So we need Christ. We need him central. In fact, that's this argument that Paul makes throughout this whole letter. He is raising the supremacy or, or affirming the supremacy of Christ in the minds of these Colossian believers because false teachers are teaching things that kind of pick away at this uh, identity portion of Christ or maybe uh, uh, reduces the effectiveness of his salvation, the justification by faith we have in him. And and yeah, he accomplished good things on the cross, but we've got to do this other stuff too in order for us to be accepted before God. And Paul says, don't listen to that. It may sound persuasive, it may sound good and reasonable, but don't listen, don't fall for this. I am concerned for you, even though I am absent in the body, nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit. Notice how he brings these two ideas together. I feel the absence. I mean, he's about a thousand miles away from Colossae in Rome. A thousand miles as the crow flies. Now, that's not how he would have traveled, whether by ship or by land. Uh, a long journey for him to get back to Colossae, which he uh, hasn't been there with the church before. But he says, even though I am absent in the flesh or in the body, I'm with you in spirit. And we think, oh, that's kind of weird. What are, you, what are you saying there, Paul? Well, in some respects, we could make this analogy or this contrast between uh, the, the, the flesh is bad and the spirit is good, right? Jesus even said uh, the flesh is, or excuse me, the spirit is willing, but the flesh or the body is weak. Uh, so he said, pray that you would not enter into temptation back in the Garden of Gethsemane to those three disciples that were with him. I don't think Paul is making this distinction between uh, spirit is good and flesh is evil, or even in the in the pre-Gnostic kind of false doctrine going on Colossae of, of matter being evil, bad, nasty, and the spirit is good, so we need to be, you know, beat our bodies into submission, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. But in this sense, being ascetic, being, you know, restricting your body and not eating foods, 1 Timothy um, 4 talks about uh, not eating foods and and being restrictive and, and not getting married and all that. No, that's not what Paul is talking about. Matter, God created our bodies, God created our spirits as well. Uh, the Gnostics would say matter is bad, spirit is good. Paul isn't saying that either. He's just saying, I'm not with you all. I'm absent. I'd love to be with you. I'd love to see you. I'd love to encourage you. I'd love, as he says to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, I want to impart some spiritual gift to you, which he wrote down. He gave him a spiritual gift, and that was Romans, the book of Romans, which is, whoa. What a gift. Would you like to receive a gift like that? Well, we have. We have the whole Bible right here. Do you appreciate it? Do you live it? Do you listen to it? Paul is just saying, I'm not with you, but I am with you in spirit. I am so aligned with you. I want to have the, the fellowship that um, we have in the spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells all of us, and he is our common bond. Ephesians 4 talks about there's one body, one spirit that brings us together. And he says, we can have that kind of a fellowship. He says, look, I, I may be absent from you. I'm not with you personally, but I have you on my heart. I have you uh, in my thoughts, in my prayers. If we were to back up in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 9, it says, for this reason, when he heard the report of the church's advancement uh, in Colossae, since the day we heard of it from Epaphras, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled and on and on it goes there. But he says, we have prayed for you. We continue to pray for you. Paul says, I have a burden for all the churches, whether he's been there personally or not, that they would be built up in, in Christ. He says, I am uh, uh, very desirous that your, your faith would be established and I want that to happen. I want to be uh, part of it. 
In a related letter, he, Paul wrote at a very similar time, maybe a little bit later than Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon, he wrote Philippians, probably toward the end of his imprisonment. And he says in verse 2 of chapter 2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. There is this unity that comes from a spiritual affinity or attention to the things of God, the things of the spirit, spiritual things. And he says, I want you guys to be united in spirit. Now, there, if you read Philippians, it's all the joy, 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 happy, happy, happy. But there was some discord there. Remember, chapter four says, I urge those two ladies to live in peace, live in harmony. And you, uh, you help her. You need to go alongside them and, and encourage them in that way. But you need to be united in this way, intent on one purpose. What's the purpose? Christ. Christ is that purpose. Christ in everything. Christ magnified in your life. Christ as part, not as part, but the central aspect of your doctrine, the unifying aspect. What does this all mean? How do we understand God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with land and, and a, a nation and all these things? How do we understand that? How do we understand the prophecies of Isaiah and the suffering servant or Ezekiel and this weird stuff that he was seeing? And how do we bring it all together? It's Christ. Christ is that unifying idea. Christ is that uh, whole package that uh, brings us together. In fact, there's a beautiful word. I won't say it for us, but the, the long in Greek, there's a, the, the, the translation of it in Ephesians 1, I don't know, verse 12 or 13, somewhere in there. Uh, the summing up of all things in Christ. Now, that summing up of all things is one Greek word, basically, almost a Greek, one Greek word that means to be, to be brought under the headship of Christ. And it just, I mean, that's what it is. Everything under the headship of Christ. As much as we might like to, to pine for this political figure or that political figure, uh, humanly speaking, we want everything lined up right under the authority, the, the regency of Christ himself. He is the king. He is that one in whom we uh, long for. We desire him to come on earth. We des greatly desire his appearing. And so he is that unifying, that, un that uh, bringing together of all these things. And so Paul can have this kind of affection, this affinity for this church he's never met because Christ is Lord of Paul in prison in Rome and the Colossian church there some thousand miles away. He says these two things there in the middle of the verse, rejoicing to see. Well, grammatically or, or vocabularily speaking, he's, he's saying, I am rejoicing and seeing your so forth that he says there. I am rejoicing to see, it says here, or uh, viewing with joy. He says, now wait a minute, viewing with joy or seeing with joy. Paul isn't there in Colossae. How can he see what's going on there? Well, it's kind of similar when, when Paul wrote letters to the Corinthian church. Remember, he wrote four letters, the second and the fourth of which we have in, in, our, in our New Testament canon. The first and the third were not recorded for us uh, uh, in, the, in the canon. Yet he says, I've written some harsh things, but I rejoice to see the response that you have, the repentance that you have, the, the uh, obedience that you have toward my commandment. Now, he wasn't there in Corinth, but he, he was able to perceive, he understood what was going on there. How did he, underst how did he understand and perceive? Well, it's actually, he heard about it. So he's talking about, I'm seeing it with my eyes, but he actually heard about it from Epiphras. So it's kind of interesting how he presented it, right? Maybe I get too excited about some of these interesting grammatical stuff, but the point is, he is having a, a third-party interface 
of this report from this this uh, Colossian church, he just says it made me so made my day to hear about you. But I know I'm 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 concerned for you, and I'm writing this letter to you know bolster your faith and your your singular attention to Christ. But I'm just happy to hear whenever there's a church that is paying attention to Christ and wants to grow individually and corporately. I am just happy about it. So many times Paul ties or links his joy with the spiritual progress of Christians. He, at various occasions, like Romans 16, 19, he says, the report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. His rejoicing was connected to the obedience of these Roman believers. Now, up to that time, when he wrote Romans, he hadn't been in Rome. And so, but isn't that interesting, especially when you read through Romans 16, he says, greet so-and-so and greet so-and-so and greet so-and-so and give this person that and say, my mother and their mother. And, and how does he know all these people? They're on his prayer sheet or prayer scroll or whatever. He knows these people and he loves their story and he prays for them and he is so attuned to them and he rejoices when they are advanced and he, he, he is greatly burdened and concerned when they are hoodwinked or taken away. Remember Galatians? He wrote the letter to the Galatian churches. I am befuddled. He didn't say that word, but I am confused about you. How in the world are you fallen so quickly away from the gospel that we gave to you? He's very concerned for them. Uh, love, we didn't quite read it this morning in our opening scripture reading, but verse 6 says, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. So there's that connection of rejoicing and truth and what is real and genuine and, and valid. Uh, Paul says, this is what we celebrate. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 3 says, I don't want to have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice. Hmm. I don't want to be sorrow, made sorrow by those who ought to make me rejoice. So there's that connection again between the spiritual progress of believers and Paul's joy and rejoicing before God. It's not to say that all of our joy ought to be connected with the performance of other people. I mean, we'd be disappointed and be kind of sad a lot of times because we're not the people we ought to be all the time. And yet... Uh, it is influenced as we see other people succeed. Now, of course, we don't want to be covetous and envious of other people's advancement and everything's going well for them and why isn't everything going well for me? Love is not envious, right? Love does not seek its own. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails and so forth. Remember, even back in chapter one of Colossians, Paul says, I rejoice. What did he rejoice in? Do you remember in verse 24? I rejoice in my sufferings. That's kind of a, Paul, I mean, you got, you're just over the top sometimes. How dare you rejoice in your sufferings? Remember that in 2 Corinthians, what is it, 11, I think, he gives a whole list of things that he has suffered and endured, stonings and beatings and imprisonments and being shipwrecked and out in this, the open ocean for, or open sea anyway, for a while, and all these different things. But he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. What? How can you say that? Because in my flesh, I do my share in behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. The world hates Christ, but Christ isn't here physically. So what does the world do? He, The world takes its animosity, its anger out on Christians. And he says, I rejoice that I can be, as the early apostles did, said earlier, that I rejoice that I have been considered worthy to suffer shame or reproach for the sake of the name of Christ. I rejoice in that. 
Now there may be a time coming for us when that kind of persecution, that suffering uh, because of our Christian stance uh, comes right knocking on our door. What are we going to do? Run and hide? Deny Christ? Well, we don't want to deny Christ. Deny Christ, he'll deny us before his Father. We want to testify of Christ. We want to be faithful to the end. We want to uh, have the opportunity as much as is possible in our performance that Christ would say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's the, the goal that we have. You know, this, this last example of rejoicing is a different guy, not Paul, but now John. John says, and this is, I know a lot of families who have this verse embroidered or, or plastered on their wall. And as 3 John verse 4, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. This is joy, my children. Now, Paul, excuse me, John is not in that situation talking about his biological children, children, but those who are uh, um, converts under his ministry, Christian believers under his uh, uh, example or his, his preaching. But to hear of my children walking in the truth, to see their spiritual advantage, how great it is to see little children, uh, little babies as they grow and become toddlers and walking around. You rejoice that they are walking and, and mo mobile and, and uh, but especially walking in the truth, spiritually speaking, uh, adhering to the scriptures, reading it for themselves, not just uh, taking what their parents have said, but living out their Christian uh, faith, loving Christ with all that they are. And so Paul says, I rejoice when I see that. He says, I'm seeing this, I'm perceiving it. Uh, and I, even though I'm absent from you, I am so uh, concerned for your spiritual advantage. Paul had heard, as I mentioned from Epiphras back in chapter one, of their faith, hope, and love, and of their acceptance of the gospel. Now, we, that really is where it starts, the acceptance of the gospel. Do you believe this message or not? message of Christ. Do you admit that you're a sinner? You need a savior. Christ is that savior. Christ died on the cross for our sins. And he rose the third day, just like the scripture said. And whoever calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you believe in that? And then, and then does your faith then result in hope, not a pessimism or a, a negative view on life, but a hope, realizing God's promises are sure, true, and, and stable. And we can we can put our whole confidence in it. And then because of your faith and your hope for the future, do you have love then for one another? One another? Can you love even your enemies, those who uh, persecute you and despitefully use you, as Jesus said? This is the proof of faith, and this is an example of the Colossian uh, advancement or spiritual maturity that is going on there. So Paul says, look, I'm, I'm not with you, but I'm concerned for you. What am I concerned about? What am I so excited about? What, what causes me great joy? It is to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. He has this twofold idea, uh, your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. These two words can relate to kind of a military, Roman military expression. Uh, again, Paul is very much aware of the Roman military having been taken by uh, a garrison from Jerusalem down to Caesarea back in the day when he first was arrested. I mean, wow, the cavalry was there, the foot soldiers and all this kind of thing. Plus, he was in prison there for two years. Right, in the, If Jerusalem was the, the main capital of the land, Caesarea on this coast, on the sea, was the, 
the political capital. That's where, uh, that's where the Pontius Pilate or the Herods or Festus and Felix, uh, Felix and Festus in that order, uh, were governors. That, they were down in Caesarea. It's beautiful. It's not all the hotbed of religious fervor up in Jerusalem, all the craziness going on there. So that's where Paul was. But he was so much exposed to the Roman military. Uh, maybe even during his house arrest in Rome, those two years, he was physically chained to a Roman guard. And they would come in, and, and of course, they'd have all their their um, equipment on, their uniform, and, and uh, their Ephesians 6, their sword of the, not the sword of the spirit, but their sword and their breastplate and their shield and their helmet and all that kind of stuff, which is, as Paul was writing Ephesians 6, he may be looking over to the Roman guard next to him and says, yeah, the shield and the breastplate and the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. and Yeah, that's a, that's a good analogy. Well, I think maybe the same thing is going on here. He's talking about a good discipline and stability. These are ideas in a, in a military model of being in order or let's line up, let's, let's all get in rank. And then also the solidity of it, the, the firmness of it, the strength that we present as we go forward in this regard. Uh, it could refer to, to that. It could refer... Maybe I have to trace this down a little bit further. In the in the Gnostic, you know, when full blown Gnosticism wasn't until another hundred or so years later, in this in this time frame, and yet there was a, an aspect of Gnostic cosmology. These are big words, right? Uh, but the 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 Gnostic view of the cosmos, the stars and planets and universe and everything, they identified. Uh, and used one, a word that's used here, I think it's stability, used this word uh, stability to um, talk about the upper heavens or the upper realm as distinct from the lower realm. So maybe Paul is talking about that. Nah. The idea is that this, this, this word um, here translated stability is often used in the Old Testament to translate the word that we have usually in our uh, translations firmament, like in Genesis 1, the firmament of the heavens or the expanse of the heavens. So it could have some cosmological aspect. The, the overall idea, though, with this word is firmness or strength or, or in this translation, stability. It has to do with something that is solid or even steadfast. It's variously translated in the Old Testament. And uh, something that is firm, something that is, um, yeah, steadfast is the basic idea. So Paul says, I'm rejoicing to see your good discipline and this firmness of your faith. Well, what about this good discipline? This has the idea of orderliness or things that are uh, arranged properly. Now, if you think, okay, Paul, what are you even talking about here? What does this even mean? He's saying, your faith is not helter-skelter. It's not uh, uh, an assortment of loosely connected details and facts. No, you are understanding this. It is being built upon row by row or rank by rank. It is a, a stable foundation for you. It is something that serves you not just for the future. Believing in the gospel is not just something to get you out of hell when you die. It is something to live by right now. And the truth that God gives us is a stable idea. Remember Ephesians for um, thir well, 14 and 15 and 16 talks about this idea not being blown around by every wind of doctrine uh, there in verse 14. 
not uh, carried, or how does he say, uh, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, which is what he just said. Don't be deluded by persuasive argument. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in all aspects into him who's the head, even Christ from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's what it's about. It's the, the contrast of stable, well-ordered truth against the crazy, wave-shifting, uh, windy uh, doctrines of men and doctrines of demons, as Paul says elsewhere. I'm rejoicing to see the stability, the good order of your faith in Christ. You need to have, we all need to have this kind of idea where our doctrines are not just haphazardly arranged where we might believe this doctrine but we don't know how it relates to this other doctrine over here and when we have a question hey what, what is it how does this relate to that well i don't know ask somebody else go read a book about it we need to have we need to aspire to have a good discipline an ordered faith a, a stable faith a, a faith that is is strong and can last it can carry us through these times of of persuasive argument that says you know did god really say or where in the bible does it say or how could god really mean this when he said i mean we all know that x y and z we know science says this and the other thing is your faith stable is it based on the scriptures not on based based on what i say necessarily or what you hear other preachers say but is can you trace it back to the scriptures the scriptures are the authority not anyone who presents it um to ourselves or presents it for us we need to go back to it now that comes back to us, James 3 says, verse 1 says, don't let many of y'all be preachers. Now, that's a little bit loose translation. But don't be teachers because you're going to incur a stricter judgment. Be careful what you say. But Hebrews also says, you guys need to be teachers. You're old enough. You're mature enough. You've known the scriptures long enough. You've known the spirit. What are you doing still focusing on these elementary teachings of, of, uh, of the faith? You need to advance. You need to be a, a, a filled out, robust theologian. And many people say, especially Christians who've been in, the, in Christ for years and years, say, well, I'm no theologian. You know what the next word usually is? I'm no theologian, but let me tell you how you ought to live or think or believe or act. Let me tell you how to love your wife. Or I'm no theologian, but no, everybody is a theologian. Everybody has a theology. A theology just means doctrine about God. Atheists have a theology. Agnostics have a, a theology. Everybody has a theology. The question is, is our theology sound? Is it, as Paul says to the Colossian church, is your theology, your faith, well-ordered, and is it stable? Is it strong? Can it withstand the, the pressures, the, the contrast, the, the uh, world beating, beating us down, right? There's a reason why Paul says in Romans 12 verse 2 don't be conformed to the world or i think it's a new living or living translation says don't allow the world to press you into its mold isn't i mean have, have we experienced maybe not personally but in our present age and culture cancel culture if somebody doesn't fit the narrative they are canceled they don't fit into this world they are contra mundum as various reformers would say they're against the world they they don't you know, toe the line with what the world wants to uh, to maintain. And that ought to be us, because the faith, adhering to the faith in Christ is so contrary to the world. It ought not be. Again, going back to that, that statement in Ephesians 1, everything is going to be brought under the headship of Christ, but we don't see that yet. 
Not everything is under the submission of Christ. There is much rebellion, much uh, uh, disobedience in this world, many false doctrines that are going on there. We long for that day when the faith will be made sight and all people will bow their knees and, and uh, to the Lord Christ, but that's not yet. And so for us to be obedient to Christ means that we're going to be uh, standing out in this world, but that's okay. Would you rather live for the world, which is passing away, which is under the judgment of God, or live for the approval of God, which is forever? We want to be faithful to God. That's our mandate. That's our expectation. We want to be pronounced as those who have a good discipline and a stable faith before God. Notice it says here, and I have something that kind of sums this up, hopefully. This, this uh, well, one, one more thing about that. Good discipline and stability. If you were to uh, maybe uh, get some Lego bricks, plastic bricks, and, you know, they're typically strong, especially if you add more pieces to it and build out with it. But unless you arrange them in an orderly fashion, maybe you're building a bridge or a house or, you know, building a wall or building a robot or whatever, you have an order for it, but you also need strength. And if you had an orderliness, but it's, it's you know, one piece over here and one piece over here, and they're not connected very carefully, it may look orderly and beautiful and everything, but if there's not stability to it, it's going to fall apart. Or, contrarily, if you have something that is so strong and beefy that, that I mean, it's going to withstand any kind of parent walking on it, which happens sometimes, uh, then, but it's not orderly, it's not built in, this, in such a way where the pieces are connected, kind of like walls. Ever build a wall with all four by uh, ones and, and it's just a, a wall like that and you build another one next to it and guess what? They're not interlaced, they're not interconnected so it's going to fall over. I'm getting really deep with this Lego stuff. But you see the idea, you need both an ordered faith and a strong faith connected together. One without the other, it's going to fall apart. A faith, a, a doctrine, uh, an, an adherence to that doctrine needs to be both organized and robust. It needs to be built upon these things. When he says, he's talking about the stability of your faith in Christ, what is this faith? Well, it's two aspects we could think about, as I just mentioned. One is the activity of believing, so to have faith in something. But another aspect is, well, what am I trusting in? What, is, what am I believing? What is the faith? So it's, it's the believing, it's the action of believing in something, but it's also the content of what you're believing. Both aspects of these faith of this faith is so important. Paul talks about faith and faithfulness and faithful throughout his letter. He talks back in, in verse 23 of chapter 1. He says, if indeed, or I, I hope that you, I, I earnestly expect you to continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. And in verse 7, we'll see in, in Colossians 2 uh, soon that you have been firmly rooted now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. And then again in verse 12, he talks about uh, faith, faith in the working of God and, and uh, also talking about various other people, Epaphras, Tychicus, Onesimus, faithful brothers in the Lord. Did you know when we talk about the activity or even the content, what the object of what is believed in, there are many things the scripture says, don't. Don't put your trust in these. Why? What are you trusting in those things for? How foolish is that? For example, don't trust in yourself. Hmm. Don't trust in yourself. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six says, "He who trusts in his own heart is a fool." 
but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Or in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, many times it says, because of your trust in your own achievements and treasures, even you yourself will be captured. Jeremiah was preaching the time when Jerusalem was being overrun by the Babylonians, and they said, no, we're fine. We have the temple of the Lord here. Ezekiel actually said, uh, I think it was Ezekiel, people were saying, the temple of the Lord is right here. How God's not going to come and destroy his temple, is he? Yeah, he is, because you guys are wicked. Don't trust anything of your own achievements and your own treasures, your own status or anything. And other examples. He says, don't trust in yourselves. Even Paul says, 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 9, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Whoa, that's a pretty committed kind of faith that he's willing to die. We had this sentence of death in ourselves so we wouldn't trust in ourselves, but in God who, is, who raises the dead. So don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your strength. So many times in scripture, uh, this, this idea uh, is presented. Strength being, whether militaristically speaking, you know, your bow and your arrow or your chariots, don't some trust in, in chariots, but we trust in them, the Lord our God. Uh, I will not, the psalmist says, I will not trust in my bow. No, will my sword save me. God is the one who will deliver me. Isaiah said, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they're very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek Yahweh. Another thing not to trust, by the way, and you'll go home and, and look at your bank statement, but don't trust in riches. Don't trust in riches. Psalm 49 says, why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me, even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. Many things he was saying in there, but he says, don't trust in your riches, your wealth, the abundance of your riches. And even that statement, no man can by any means redeem his brother. Uh-oh. Didn't Christ redeem us? Isn't he our kinsman redeemer? Isn't he our brother? Yes, but he is not any man. He is God in the flesh. He is the one who could accomplish redemption for us. We have a, a secure uh, a salvation in him. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, but Christ did present a ransom for us. That's what we believe. That gives us hope, gives us life. Uh, Psalm, another psalm says that somebody trusted in the abundance of riches and not trusting in God. Another example, not to trust in. Don't put your trust in other people. That kind of sounds nasty, but to the degree that, okay, you, we don't say our faith in Christ and our faith in other persons, it's the same. No, our faith in Christ is like way better, bigger, more substantial. We trust people. We want to trust people. We want to be trusted by people, but it's nothing in comparison to the trust that we have toward God. Psalm 118 says, It's better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in princes. And this wonderful passage, you, if you're taking notes, write this down. Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8. It's a contrast between those who trust in mankind and those who trust in Yahweh. And it's a tremendous thing. Don't trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. Really, the only example I could find of a positive statement of trust, you ought to trust so-and-so, is Proverbs 31. And verse 11 says, the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. That's the only time trust in a human is spoken of in the positive fashion. It's between a husband and a wife and particularly the husband toward this wonderful, um, strong, virtuous woman.
Don't trust in idols. Another example, don't trust in lies. Who do we, whom should we trust? You know, every time, positively speaking, other than that example in Proverbs 31, every time trust is upheld and, and affirmed and, and uh, uh, promoted, it is trust in God. It is trust in his word. It is trust in his only begotten son, in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. It's trusting in the light. It is trusting, as Jesus said, John 14, verse 1, believe in God, believe also in me. So many times in Scripture we see don't trust in men, but then we see Jesus saying, trust me, believe me, he who believes in the Son has life, and so forth. What does that indicate about the person of Jesus Christ? He is God. He is the one who is God in the flesh for us. We can trust him just as we trust God the Father. We can trust Christ. One last little thing, and I promise we'll be done. I need to show you a little bit of geography, geology. No. What's the word? Geometry, thank you. All these things. A theological pyramid, a little bit of geometry. And maybe you've seen this before. This is a little simplified, a little different version of it. But a theological pyramid based on this idea of a well-ordered and stable faith, the doctrine that we believe. Well, it starts with the biblical text. We start with God's word. We don't start with, well, what does so-and-so rabbi say? Or what does a scholar, Christian teacher, dude, this guy say? We start with the Bible, and then we try to exegete it. We try, we interpret it. We try to understand what is it, what does it mean. We move on into systematic theology. We're trying to say, how does this, this teaching over here relate to this teaching? How do these doctrines kind of congeal into a, a systematic whole? And then, of course, it expresses itself in, well, how ought we to live? Practical. How, how is the, the sovereignty of God, for example, practical right now in this day and age? Or how does the, um, the doctrine of uh, the Catholicity of the church, the, the universality of the church, how does that relate to our identity as a church and our, our partnership with other churches? There are different questions that we can ask in each of these categories. First of all, what does the Bible say? Is, I mean, what is the text of Scripture? And this has issues of, for example, um, the inspiration of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, what books belong in the canon, which ones don't, even looking at textual criticism with different manuscripts that we have, how do we know which is the, the actual Hebrew text and the Greek text. Text We talk about the authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture in that first, in that first stage, that basic stage, the biblical text. Then we ask, what does the Bible mean? What does, this, what does this statement mean? How do these verses go together? How does this, this verb structure, this word structure uh, happen to go together? We uh, affirm a grammatical, historical uh, uh, interpretation or method. We look at vocabulary. How are these words used? How are they, putting to, how are they put together? We uh, then move on to how do these things relate? How does this verse relate to that verse? And how do we understand uh, things? We're trying to draw out and unite doctrine. We also bring in at this point historical theology. What has the church taught from across the ages? And what has the church affirmed as orthodoxy? What is a right doctrine uh, across the ages? It's not to say the church is always right. We always need to be reforming, as the, the cry is, semper reformandum. A practical theology is, well, how ought we to apply this? What, is this? what does this mean for me? First we ask, what does this mean? But then what does it mean for me? Or how does it apply to my life? And this is, how do we change and grow? Because the way that we are right now is not how we ought to be in the future. If we were to think of it in this regard, this theological pyramid and even the questions that we ask on the side, there's another way we can look at this also, and that has to do with these words we've seen in this context about knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. We talk about knowledge, it is knowing what does this even mean? 
What are the facts? What is this? What is it saying? What does it mean? How do how do these things relate? You remember, understanding is is being able to say, well, because of this, I'm going to do that, or because of this truth, this must be true as well. It's it's understanding the relationship between truths, and then finally, wisdom is how do we do this? How do we make this so in our lives? How do we live this out? Wisdom is really the goal that we have. It's not enough to have knowledge of God's word. A lot of people, I mean, even. Um, James says that the demons know this, and yet they're not saved. They, they're, they're known. And, and the world, so many, those who are agnostic or even atheist, know the scripture very well. Do we? They know sometimes better than Christians, and yet they haven't bowed their knee to the Lord. They haven't submitted their whole life to him and trusted him for salvation. Wisdom teaches us that God, there is a God. He has Uh, spoken to us in his son through his word through his spirit through the church and now we have this this wisdom this ability to live a life that pleases him a theological pyramid this introduces a well-ordered and stable uh, faith for us and we need to grow in this don't rest on your laurels and say well I am not a theologian, and I will leave that for other people. No, you're, you're a theologian. You'll be tested on various things. Now, you don't be, have to pass a test about canonicity or that kind of thing. But how did you live your life? This practical theology, based on all the stuff you've been taught, how are you living? What, what characterizes your life? What do you celebrate in your life? What is the, the organizing principle of your life? It ought to be God. Well, to be more specifically, Christ Jesus himself. He is the object of our faith. He is the one in whom we believe and have every meaning in our lives. Pray that Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us. We want to grow. We want to be, uh, as the Colossian church was, at least at that time, stable in their faith in Christ, had a well-ordered faith. We're thankful for this man, Epiphras, who was a faithful servant of yours back in the day. And Paul, as he took time in his imprisonment to write this encouraging letter to them, We pray that we would learn the lessons as well, that we would not be deluded with persuasive argument. Please help us to be rooted and established in that most holy faith, once for all delivered to the saints, celebrating the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please help us to prosper. Please help us to advance, be, as Paul said in verse 28 of chapter 1, complete in Christ, to be mature, to be finished, to be well-founded in Christ himself. We pray for your kindness, your patience toward us. We know that we fall and falter in so many ways, but you are faithful. Please help us to persevere to the end. Those who persevere to the end will be saved, you say, and it's your work, not ours. We're so grateful. Please establish faith in each soul here um, in in this congregation this morning. Please help us to grow. Help us to grow into Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.